Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com. From St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. The, the judges would say, behave yourself, like be good, like young ladies. They weren't having any of it. It was a hellhole, and Fanny committed to organizing her fellow workers for making a dollar a week. Tuberculosis was rampant, tar dripping on them constantly. And young girls uh, from 10 to 11, they would start at 7.15 a.m., a half-hour lunch break and another hour at dinner, but then you'd come back and work till 9 in the evening. She kept writing back to the St. Louis labor movement and encouraging everybody to get the courage to defy the law. I'm Danny Wisentowski. The history of labor is always being written. This summer in St. Louis, workers in multiple Starbucks locations and even cannabis dispensaries voted to unionize their workplaces. Claims that no one wants to work anymore do little to cover the unmet needs that have overwhelmed many workers amid COVID, inflation, and years and years of low pay. At some point, people won't put up with mistreatment, and whether by unionizing, staging a great resignation, or a quiet quitting, they're getting their point across. On today's date, 103 years ago, a labor organizer named Fanny Sellens, who had gotten her start in St. Louis, was killed in a Pennsylvania labor protest. She was shot multiple times by deputies as they cracked down on striking miners. It was a very different kind of labor environment, and Sellens' story is among those explored in a new exhibit called Dangerous Women, open now at St. Louis Public Library. And here to talk about that exhibit and Sellens' life is Rosemary Foyer, director of the Mother Jones Heritage Project and a history professor at Northern Illinois University. Rosemary, you've curated this exhibit, which, as we mentioned, is titled Dangerous Women. Why did you settle on that name? Well, both of these women were considered to be dangerous, and they were, um, you know, went against the prevailing norms of what, how women should behave. Um, and inspired other women to do the same, to take to the streets and to see the streets as a place where they could make change. Um, We tend to see middle-class women of the feminist movement as the um, innovators in that regard, but uh, these women um, were rebels and uh, should be remembered for that contribution. Right. And, you know, their path to becoming these rebels, um, dangerous women, as you mentioned, um, they they had kind of different starts. Um, And let's talk about Fanny Sellens, who I think, you know, folks might not be aware of her name in the way that other labor organizers were. But she wasn't just an organizer. She was a worker. She was a mom. And her husband died in St. Louis. And she went to work at a garment factory to support her four children. Now, how precarious position was that to to be a widow and a worker and a labor organizer uh, in the late 20th century? Uh, In the early 20th century, it was, yes, uh, it was uh, difficult because women were confined to a few categories of jobs that they had access to. And uh, 
almost all of them were really very low paying. They were not sustained by a living wage. So it, um, Selens rose, I would argue, because she had the support of her family who were diehard trade unionists. Her, uh, they were, both of these women were Irish, so they did share this, Mother Jones and Fanny Selens. Um, but they were part of communities that were on the left wing um, of the labor movement. Her father was a painter, and so um, her her own daughter said, we grew up with unions. My f grandfather took my mother and me to union meetings. So even before she became a worker because of the death of her husband, she was imbued with that union mentality, the idea that you get you only get places when you act collectively, when you join with your fellow workers. So, um, you know, she had that. She had the support of other women and a socialist movement in St. Louis that was growing after 1900. Mother Jones had contributed to that. Mother Jones came into St. Louis and argued that women should be organized as part of the labor movement and forget about these craft divisions. You know, the union movement under the American Federation of Labor was set as set up in... Um, craft divisions, you know, sure. and painters, I just wanted... carpenters, etc. So Fanny was part of that milieu of St. Louis. Right, right. And I, I wanted to, you know, just to pause, you know, we were talking both about Fanny Sellens and Mother Jones, and we'll talk a bit about Mother Jones a bit later uh, in this conversation. But I just want to focus, you know, Fanny Sellens, uh, you know, she was working in a garment factory on Washington Avenue, mm -hmm. North 13, 13th Street, um, you know, here in St. Louis. What can you tell us about what these garment factories were like at the time? Well, just to give you an example of where she started out at 16th and Market, uh, it was a former planing mill. And the women, it was so hot there. There were hundreds of women lined up with sewing machines. She herself said, you know, I've known nothing but the sewing machines since I started working. <clears throat> and uh, these were women, young girls, uh, from 10 to 11. They would start at 7.15 a.m. If they didn't make it there because the streetcar didn't come in time, or, you know, it was all, there were always delays, they would be locked out as punishment. They worked by the piece. So if you are locked out, you're not going to earn any money until they agree to open the door. In some cases, they put them in the basement. It was like something out of Dickens, Charles Dickens, <laughs> you know, That's where just you're incredible. locked in a dank basement for an hour as punishment. And you have to then work till you have a half hour lunch break and another hour at dinner. But then you'd come back after that break and work till nine in the evening. And you might get six dollars a week if if you are um, willing to abuse yourself and risk danger from the sewing machine. You know, they hired, they would have advertisements, young girls, you know, earn money by tr um, while you train yourself on the sewing machine. But the sewing machine took, a, you know, the, the amount of um, uh, work that was required to earn uh, a, a, um, a piece, right, through your piecework, um, through accomplishing a piece of the manufacturing of a garment, in other words, sewing a sleeve on or sewing a button on, um, the timing was 
in- incredibly difficult. So Fanny reported that most of those young girls were making a dollar a week. Wow. And that was, you know, just survival, the family's survival. So they they were, um, the, the manufacturers would say, well, this is just normal. And this is what is necessary. Or this, women don't have to support themselves. Now, right? Rosemary, so that was their justification. Yeah. What, what protections did these children have, if, if any? Um, none, <laughs> because um, the uh, at first there was none. Then the Missouri state of Missouri passed a law against child labor, but you had a little codicil, a rider in the provision that said if you went down and said, um, you know, got um, some kind of dispensation, you were allowed to work as a trainer. So you know, all along Washington Avenue were these sweatshops that employed young girls and that drove the wages down for everybody. Um, they then, uh, you know, they, they had tried everything, you know, to ensure that St. Louis was a cheap labor source so they could bring garment, the garment industry into the city. And in fact, they told the women, you know, you're the basis for which the industry will be, will be here if you don't accept these wages you might find that these companies move. So we think that's a new thing, but that was always Mm. the case. And the big one was Marx and Haas, where Fanny organized. Marx and Haas established this beautiful building that's still there at 13th and Washington Avenue. It's gorgeous. Um, It was built by famous architects. And it's actually on the National Historic Landmark. And uh, that was different than the first site, which was just a hellhole. It had been a farmer planing mill, and the women complained of tar dripping on them constantly in the summers or during rain. You know, they were dripping wet coming out of there from work. But um, in the Marx and Haas, it was a beautiful building, and most people might think on the outside how gorgeous. It was built as an investment tool for Washington University. And they... um, uh, you know, but on the inside, it was a sweatshop where pre- tuberculosis was rampant. It had, you know, you had to steam the clothes, and that steam carried germs from tuberculosis. Goodness, um, all over. So it was a hellhole, and Fanny committed to organizing her fellow workers. Wow. A there. beautiful building with a, a sweatshop and a hellhole inside. Um, just, mm-hmm. just a, a, a chilling vision. You know, we're, we're talking to Professor Rosemary Foyer, director of the Mother Jones Heritage Project and a history, history professor at Northern Illinois University. And we're talking about a new exhibit at the St. Louis Public Library called Dangerous Women. Now, you brought up a, a couple points of what it was like um, for Selens to be working in these uh, these sweatshops. And uh, we have an excerpt from some of her speeches and writing describing what this felt like. Um, and, and, you know, she wrote this uh, between 1912 and 1914. And as, as you paraphrased just a few moments before, she writes, I have known nothing but the sewing machine for 15 years in St. Louis. Uh, in these early years, before we got together and quietly formed the union that enforced the nine-hour day, the shop was open at 7.15. And if you weren't there on time, you didn't get in. All the doors were locked at 7.15. Sometimes it made me sick to think that what would happen if a fire should come. We had half an hour off at noon to eat, an hour off between 5 and 6, and then the whole crowd, children of 10 and 11 and old women with the rest, worked until 9. The kids made $1 or so a week and no more than $6. 
Those are the words of Fanny Sellens, a labor organizer uh, who was active between you know, around 1912 and 1914. Rosemary, those those numbers are just so mind-boggling. A dollar or so a week, working until you know ten and eleven for virtually nothing. What's this common? What do you hear in that description of that kind of workplace? Well, it was common in St. Louis. The um, you know I once tried to get into the Brown Shoe archives. They wouldn't let me there, but the archivist actually told me. And Brown Shoe was on Washington Avenue. Um, that if you saw some of the materials that um, he had seen, you would be shocked, uh, and everybody would be shocked. Brown Shoe has never opened those archives. Um, and, uh, you know, the workers were rebelling against it, you know, but it was masked, it was hidden. There isn't, you know, many pictures. There aren't many pictures of, of children working in St. Louis. They really guarded. It was a lockdown against the media, too, and a cooperation that nobody was really investigating. There was just an assumption that these immigrants would accept these kind of conditions. Hmm. Now, if Fanny Sellens, she would eventually move on from St. Louis, and she went to West Virginia to help striking miners, and, and on from there. What do we know about how her years in St. Louis shaped that later life's work? Oh, it was shaped absolutely, and it was the region, too. It was, um, you know, she learned uh, the power of solidarity in the strike that they held against Marx and Haas, and they won that strike. She became a national organizer by going after the St. Louis um, business industry, uh, the industry, launched a campaign against the, these women. She went and organized a boycott that was very effective. And the main um, source of strength came from a network of socialists across the country. St. Louis was a hub of a, of a growing socialist-oriented labor movement. She went to about 30 miles from, here, from St. Louis in Livingston, and, and they actually... Um, agreed to give every worker would give 25 cents a week to the garment workers in St. Louis. It it blew her away because these workers, these miners were so poor. So that's why she had a lot of sympathy with miners and that's where she went on to organize. Um, You know, it's a longer story that's covered in the exhibit, but um, she was, um, she kept writing back to the St. Louis labor movement, telling them of her determination to prove that solidarity was possible and encouraging everybody to take up, to get the courage to defy the law. The laws were set against workers. The police were set against workers. You couldn't walk the streets of St. Louis because you could get an injunction if you dared to picket in front of the strikes. The, the judges would say, behave yourself, like be good, like young ladies, and they weren't having any of it. And she did the same thing in the coal fields when she organized there. She organized the women primarily, um, but she organized men as well, and, and she was very effective. Wow. That, that's just an incredible story. And we need to take a quick break right now. And when we come back, we're going to continue our talk about women in the labor movement with history professor Rosemary Foyer. And we'll get to know more about Fanny Sellens and the woman known as Mother Jones. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Welcome back. 
a new St. Louis Public Library exhibit called Dangerous Women highlights the lives of two women who became icons of the labor movement. Before the break, we were discussing the life of Fanny Sellens with Rosemary Foyer, a history professor at Northern Illinois University. Now, Fanny Sellens' life ended tragically and terribly in a shooting that took place uh, during a labor protest uh, in 1919, 103 years ago, on today's date, August 26. Rosemary, what brought Fanny to that labor protest, and how did things get so crazy? Well, she was an effective organizer, and um, this was if just after the war. And, you know, the context is that they, the mine union, was trying to organize with steel workers, and this was a place she she was killed at the near the Allegheny Steel Company. But they, um, you know, the miners, um, the coal was used by steel, and so they were trying to work together. And this steel company is called Black Valley. Not because of the coal, but because they were um, so far uh, in, opposed to unions that the workers called it um, Black Valley. It was the one place uh, that was the most against unionism, and she was just brave enough, you know, and dangerous enough that she could organize that. That's what they feared. So uh, the company, when they saw that the workers were really willing to to fight back. Order uh, hired 30 deputies and company guards um, went in there with riot guns and began marching down the highway. Um, and these women, men and children, they were just there. They were um, later uh, suggested that they were rioting, but that was proved to be in, um, untrue. It was just, you know, in Pennsylvania, it was worse than in St. Louis, especially in these steel and coal companies. The public and private police were one and the same. So these were official deputies, but they were the coal and iron police, and it really was the coal companies coming in and basically having their own armed guard that was the public police. So at any rate, she saw this deputy assaulting this man, this Polish uh, man who, um, you know, they ended up, he, he just you know, confronted them and they just shot him down and she cried out and ran to protect children that she saw were in the line of fire. And they, you know, she had been a marked woman. Um, And Mother Jones especially thought that she had been just shot in cold blood in a premeditated way. She was shot in the back um, and in the head, then clubbed the guards ran away with her hat and proclaimed I'm Fanny Sellens too. Um, The coroner's jury was, you know, called uh, against this murder um, uh, to investigate the murder. And they said, oh, she was killed because she was a she was agitating the foreigners and she's un-American and uneducated. They prevented the immigrants from even testifying. And the sheriff um, arrested people who were, were ready to testify the immigrants who are ready ready to testify so it took years to get to the bottom of this truth right now you mentioned uh, you know the reaction from mother jones this other titan of the labor movement at the time another of the dangerous women who are featured in the exhibit and st louis public library uh, now some of our, our listeners might recognize mother jones is also the name of a progressive magazine but she was a real person who was named uh, born mary harris jones and her organizing 
made her notorious at the time that Fanny Sellens was also making a name for herself. Uh, now, you mentioned that, that Sellens' death really sent shockwaves throughout the country, and Mother Jones reacted to it as well. What was that reaction, and where did, it, where did that reaction carry the movement afterward? Right. So uh, Selen's family allowed the picture of her bludgeoned head and, uh, you know, to be published across the world. Um, and it, it did send shockwaves to the union movement. It wasn't covered very well in the mainstream media. But Mother Jones wrote that whenever I look at that picture of her, I wonder if it's not me lying on the ground. They shot her from behind when she bent over children to protect them. They knew what they were doing. Bending over children... Uh, with her back turned, they shot her. They went out to get Fanny Sellens. And so Mother Jones saw herself in Fanny Sellens, but she had inspired Fanny Sellens. They were both Irish-American women on the left wing of the labor movement and trying to rouse their fellow workers. Uh, Mother Jones um, had been at it since uh, the 1880s. She had become a socialist in the 1880s. And so she had a longer legacy, but uh, Fanny Sellens was cut down uh, fairly early in her career. Right. Now, Mother Jones uh, herself is buried less than an hour away from St. Louis in Mount Olive, Illinois. Why did she pick that spot as her final resting place? Uh, because she wanted to be part of um, communicating to the world that ordinary rank-and-file workers um, made this country and have to rise up. So this was a, a location of Union Minor Cemetery where workers confronted armed guards in 1898 who were uh, trying to bring in strike breakers to Verdon, Illinois. And the uh, willingness of um, workers to defend themselves against this kind of policing system is what people, what she thought was necessary, and also to take rank and file control of the labor movement. So it's the idea that ordinary people built the labor movement and not the leadership. That was her final message to the world. Rosemary, and, I, oh, I'm sorry. sorry. Uh, you sent us uh, an excerpt and, and some pieces of Mother Jones's speech and, and one she gave at Mount Olive in Illinois. And, and she had a, a couple lines that really stood out to me and, and particularly her thoughts about the labor movement of the future. And she wrote about how, you know, at the time we work day to day for the great syndicate instead of the single employer. She was pointing out this difference, rather. Mm -hmm. uh, we are confronted by the conditions such as the world perhaps has never met before in her history. She was writing about how perhaps working for these larger employers, no longer just being, uh, you know, terrorized by, you know, single uh, owners of sweatshops. And she felt like this kind of solidarity, having these larger bodies of workers, would change things. Was she right? Um, in the sense that, um, you know, the future might be these large factories, no. Mm. Um, we've seen that that has, uh, th there are certainly large corporations, and we have three corporations today that own, I mean, heads of corporations that own more wealth than um, the majority of the American people. In that sense, she was right. These things are consolidating. They're continuing to consolidate across the globe. But um, workers haven't figured out that solidarity. I think, you know, we're seeing a rise again in consideration. I think these women um, have a, a lesson in that regard, that it takes a lot of work with a multi-ethnic um, working class. That's what 
uh, the United States has a multi-ethnic working class and we've never really fully figured out how we can connect what they figured out. You need to connect the community and the family and, and all of workers' lives to the concerns of labor unions. And when labor unions just think about the workplace, they lose a piece of that. Both of these women tried to say, we have to go beyond the workplace into those communities and organize the children, organize all of workers' lives in order to have a successful labor movement. And that was, that was really something that was beat out of the labor movement too, by having, I think, a, um, a reduced left role during the Cold War. Rosemary, thank you so much for being here today, and thank you for joining us and talking about the exhibit, which is open now at the Central Library at 1301 Olive Street. This episode was produced by Maya Norfleet. Our audio engineer is Aaron Dorr. Our production intern is Avery Rogers. This podcast was mixed and edited by Aaron. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Our podcast proudly supports St. Louis artists by using music from Life Creative Group. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com.